Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our third hour this Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. In his inauguration speech two Januarys ago, President Joe Biden mentioned his task of uniting the nation at least six times by my count. Now, despite his use of Jim Crow imagery and segregationist totems to criticize his political opposition, for example, calling Republicans the party of Bull Connor and George Wallace or the Georgia voting law a second Jim Crow, despite that, he continues to think we are becoming more united as a country. We are not. So last night, just when the nation could have used a good dose of avuncular decency, Joe Biden, with few facts known by his own admission, stated this at the top of his short speech, quote, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name will we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? Close quote. Do we all know what needs to be done? I'm not sure I do. But if we are going to invoke God's name, do we think it's uniting? And what is needed most after a day like yesterday is to A, go after what everyone knows is the sacrosanctity of an entire political party's belief and everyone knows it and B, so casually dismiss an entire lobby dedicated to protecting a constitutional amendment? Consider for a moment, have you ever heard a president condemn the First Amendment or free speech or the free religion lobby or the 14th Amendment lobby on behalf of due process or equal protection of the laws or the fair trial and search and seizure lobbies of the Fourth and Fifth and other amendments? It just hits me as interesting that the Second Amendment is so casually condemned when, again, I don't know if its use or abuse is a factor here at all. What I do know is that no mass shooting perpetrators up until and including yesterday were ever members of the NRA. In fact, were they members of the NRA, these things likely would be attenuated given, A, the training NRA provides to gun owners, and B, the level of seriousness NRA members take the issue of responsibility and gun ownership from how to carry, how to point, how to clean, how to know how damned lethal your weapon is. But I'm not here to push that. I'm here to push the point that children are complex characters of hormones, of infantile thought, in the midst of their brains being developed up until about the age of 25, with strange ideas and sometimes strange fantasies amidst a youth and mental health crisis, if not pandemic, that has raged against our child population for about three years running. And I haven't even mentioned mind-altering drugs yet, prescribed and not prescribed. I'm here to push the point that a child acting the part of a monster has a lot of elements to it, especially now. And the easy answers and culprits are usually not the right ones. What one hopes for the most in these situations is not to exploit, not to exploit the politics and not to exploit the disaster. And this was a disaster, a failure, 18 years in the making. And a disaster and a failure exacerbated by school closings and radical disruptions in children's lives where we were told again and again that mental health issues and abuse issues were not only being exaggerated, They were being reported less and less because most of that reporting comes out of the school environment, and those schools were shuttered. As we told kids, we were in apprehensive fear of them, making adults sick. Dennis Prager this morning said the one thing he noticed that was absent from all the speculation was the family life of this child killer. No family mentioned at all except the grandmother until about two hours ago. 
In all our talk and countenance of talk about disrupting traditional understandings of the family and why it is outdated and outmoded, has any social science at all whatsoever anywhere, has any social science shown a better Department of Health, Education, and Welfare than a family with two parents, preferably with a father? Allow me to quote from a respected retired professor, quote, Of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded today that family is the most important, and we are called to recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers and coaches. They are mentors and role models. They are examples of success and the men who constantly push us toward it. But if we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that what too many fathers also are is missing, missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our families are weaker because of it. You and I know how true this is in the African-American community. We know that more than half of all black children live in a single-parent household, a number that has doubled, doubled, he says, since we were children. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. The professor goes on. How many times in the last year has a city lost a child at the hands of another child? How many times have our hearts stopped in the middle of the night with the sound of a gunshot or a siren? How many teenagers teenagers have we seen hanging around on street corners when they should be sitting in a classroom? How many are sitting in prison when they should be working or at least looking for a job? How many in this generation are we willing to lose to poverty or violence or addiction? How many? Yes, we need more cops on the street. Yes, we need fewer guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Yes, we need more money for our schools and more outstanding teachers in the classroom and more after-school programs for our children. Yes, we need more jobs and more job training and more opportunity in our communities. But we also need families to raise our children. He concludes, we need fathers to realize that responsibility does not end at conception. We need them to realize that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, it's the courage to raise one, close quote. I'm sorry that was a long quote. I thought it was eloquent. It belongs to not just a former professor, but a former president. His name is Barack Obama. Did the war on boys and the invocation of toxic masculinity to put an end to martial virtues have anything to do with the cultural void we now have when we see so many young men go astray? Either Mr. Rogers matters and was right, as all of Hollywood applauded him about 20 years ago, speaking about the importance of imagery on television, or he was wrong. I happen to think he was right. You know who else does? Everyone in the advertising business. They don't put imagery in magazines and on television commercials thinking the money is a waste and will have no effect. Consider in 1959 there were 27 Westerns on primetime television glamorizing male responsibility. It was a different country then. Is there anything on television today offered to young viewers that glamorizes male responsibility or does it glamorize male stupidness and feminization? And did those Westerns show young boys right and wrong or were they confused on the matter? Did they show the right reasons to use a gun or the wrong reasons or were they confused on the matter? There is a correct answer to those questions. And now the word cowboy has been turned into a pejorative here in America. 
You'll recall how it was used to condemn the Border Patrol last year as it was used to condemn Ronald Reagan and George Bush in the past. Well, thank God it was a Border Patrol agent who put the assassin down yesterday in Texas. Thank you, cowboy. Erica Komisar put it this way in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, and quote, In my practice as a psychotherapist, I've seen an increase of depression in young men who feel emasculated in a society that is hostile to masculinity. New guidelines from the American Psychological Association define traditional masculinity as a pathological state. Consider that. True, over the past half century, ideas about femininity and masculinity have evolved, sometimes for the better. But the APA guidelines demonize masculinity rather than embracing its positive aspects. In a press release, the APA asserts flatly that, quote, traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression is on the whole harmful, close quote. The APA claims that masculinity is to blame for the oppression and abuse of women. The report encourages clinicians to evaluate masculinity as an evil to be tamed rather than a force to be integrated. Think about that. It's not toxic masculinity that needs to be tamed, just masculinity. We could go on and on how boys are shamed for being boys. We've done it before. I suppose you see some of this in classes that shame whites for being white, but you can't change your skin color. And until only yesterday, you could not change your being a boy. Now you can. Dr. Christina Hoff Summers put it this way over two decades ago. Boys do not need to be rescued from their masculinity, but they are not getting the help they need. In the climate of disapproval in which boys now exist, what they need is support. Everyone knew this. All literature and all philosophy knew this. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Fred Rogers were celebrated, not just by the country, but by entertainment moguls who knew this. Today, an entirely new effort is underway. Not a throwing in of the towel, a burning of it, and the boxing ring it's metaphorically thrown into. Do we think it's an accident that we went from toxic masculinity to when researchers started publishing on this about five, ten years ago, the trend became boys wanting to become girls? Now, many on the left will dismiss the cultural aspect or argument of all this from the likes of what I'm saying. But one question If the culture doesn't matter, why does the left try so hard to change it so much? Here's my conclusion. You can confuse children or you can educate them in the mind and in the morals. You can disrupt cultural norms and disorient them, but then do not expect to see humans respond to that the way you expect them to. You can make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise, but you should not be surprised to find you've asked the castrated gilding to be fruitful. Roosevelt put it that to educate a man in the mind and not the morals is to educate a menace to society. You can surrender to children's feelings and tantrums, tantrums, or you can nurture and nurse and direct the child's emotions. You can surrender to adults' feelings and tantrums, or we can be adults, sober, thoughtful, unpanicked, and slow in upending, sustaining, and sustained cultural norms that have been with us for millennia. Doctors Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein write, Children are perfectly designed to acquire and to want to acquire the skill set that they will need as adults. We moderns have disrupted this, disrupted this to a remarkable degree. 
Children will self-program if we let them, and if we let them, we will yield children into adult bodies. This is what we have now. We spoke of surrender a moment ago in discussing the war against children that the progressive education movement began in earnest in the 1940s and 1950s. Hannah Arendt put it that there are certain forms of surrender adults may never declare in the presence of children. Well, the white flag is flying pretty high right now, and we're going to need a metaphysical Iwo Jima-type hoisting of a better flag rather quickly if we plan to recapture both adulthood, childhood, and then everything we once esteemed based on the things we used to know, including two words in seemingly short supply right now, calm and decency. Two things our children need now, too, more than ever. If you're looking for a great investment opportunity, I want you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are my friends. I've spent a lot of time with them. What they are offering is a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. Y-Refi helps people dig out of debt the right way, doing the right thing, paying off the debts, doing it with dignity, even getting FICO score recovery, massive FICO score recovery. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by, as I say, really good people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y dot com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. They're a local company, so you can visit them. They're happy to talk to you. They will not give you a sales pitch. They're just happy to talk about what they do and offer. Again, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. Based on some of what I was just talking about in the previous segment, in my monologue, uh, we were blessed yesterday in the Arizona Republic to have an op-ed by Professor Brad Wilcox, who's also the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. The title of his piece was, Let's Talk About the Family's Part in Our Country's Stability. And obviously this piece was written before the tragedy and disaster in Texas. Um, but it goes to a lot of what I was talking about. And it is interesting to me, isn't it, that we go through periods in this country of talking about massive sociological issues, and then we leave them and move on to the next thing. As with everything else, in the mid-60s, we had a talk Long talk, national conversations inspired by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat, professor of Harvard, working for LBJ, about the absence of two-parent families and what it would mean for society. That issue kind of died as the great society exacerbated a lot of that problem with absentee fathers. You know, you get a welfare check and you're incentivized to get a welfare check if there is no father in the house. That was the concern. That was the concern of a lot of welfare reformers by the time we saw the results in the 80s and 90s. Nothing good. More fatherlessness. That's what we got. More crime. That's what we got. More of everything we didn't want is what we got. And then in the 90s, 
we had a bit of a discussion about it again. To no real result, to no real end, and then it disappeared. I quoted Barack Obama on how important it was when he gave that speech a bit later in the following decade. Nothing said or discussed about it. Maybe it's here again and ripe. Maybe we will be able to have a long and sustained conversation and discussion about this issue. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, to his dying day, you, you may know him as a former United States senator in New York. He was that. He was also a lot more than that. He was a very well-known professor at Harvard and uh, before that, uh, before he was a senator, he was the ambassador to the United Nations who served both Republican and Democratic presidents. Long career in public policy. Before he passed away, uh, he was asked, what do you do? How do you solve the fatherless problem in America? How do you solve life without father in America? And he confessed I've spent my entire life looking at that question and have to tell you, at this moment, to this day, I still have no earthly idea. Well, I think he was being stinting, honestly, in that answer. And we'll talk to Brad Wilcox about that upcoming in just a few moments. I think he was being stinting because immediately, of course, you can think of ideas. Welfare reform would certainly have been one of them. What about promotion of the importance of it, more op-eds, more op-eds like Brad Wilcox's. What about more conferences? This country knows how to make a theme of something when it wants to, is my point. They know how to scare people when they want to. They know how to educate people when they want to. They know how to make differences in social and educational and other outcomes when they want to, when we want to. We know how to do it. We've done it before. We've done it on a lot of issues. We've done it in education. We've done it in drug use and abuse. We've done it on a lot of things. Gosh knows we did it on a virus. We know how to do it when we want to. We'll talk to Brad Wilcox about how to do it when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight, privilege, and honor to welcome back to the show. It's been too long. My fault. Brad Wilcox, professor of sociology and the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. I was quoting to you a little bit yesterday and uh, just in the previous segment, his op-ed in, in the Arizona Republic that ran yesterday. Let's talk about family's part in our country's stability. Dr. Wilcox, um, it would... I don't think you probably wrote this. My guess is you wrote this before the tragedy in Texas. It would be an affectation, however, to ignore that this is relevant to the kinds of things we're talking about when we see humanity go wrong in places like Texas yesterday, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's right, Seth. I mean, uh, one of the things that I saw in Washington Post coverage today is that this young man, um, you know, came from a, a family where there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of dysfunction. His, his dad was not in the picture. So as you kind of look at, um, you know, violence in our society, I think we have to understand and appreciate that one factor, among others, I think we could obviously talk about guns and mental health and red flags and those things as well, but one factor in all of this is uh, the breakdown of the family and the way in which too many of our boys um, are not... Um, you know, being adequately fathered, um, not given sort of the love and attention that they need, uh, not given a place in our society. And these guys, these young men at the margins, 
you know, um, who often end up, you know, unfortunately um, taking lives of, you know, all too many of our um, citizens and, and children. You know, it's a, you, you had an interesting sentence in your, in your op-ed, Professor, um, talking about family, uh, two-headed, fa- you know, a, a family headed by two stably married parents is the ultimate privilege in America. I seized on that because what, Professor, it's becoming incre- increasingly rare, uh, increasingly absent to find that. It has now become almost a privilege to see a kid raised in a two-parent or an intact family, isn't it? Yeah, you know, what's striking is that there was a recent uh, study on this issue and found that about 90% of kids in, you know, the upper class are being raised in married families, and only about 50% of kids in um, working and lower-income families are being, you know, raised in married families. Um, So, you know, this is just kind of one indication of the way in which um, a stable married family has unfortunately become in the last half century, um, something that is a mark of privilege. And people who are better educated, more affluent, um, are figuring out ways to get married, stay married. Um, But family instability is much more common today among working class and poor Americans. Yeah, that's right. You write in your op-ed, Professor, you write that, and I didn't know this, as late as 1970, there were really no major differences in marriage and family life by class. The stats you just gave me wouldn't have been true around the time you and I were born, huh? Exactly. I was born in 1970, of course, right, kind of as the divorce revolution was kicking into high gear. Um, but, you know, before then, you know, there weren't big uh, class divides, not big racial divides. You know, the vast majority of kids, be they rich, middle class, poor, be they black uh, or white, um, were raised in stable married families. And it's only kind of in the wake of all the, you know, the chaos and uh, disorder that enveloped this country in the 60s and 70s that things really started heading south Um in our families. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, it's not just that we saw basically marriage come apart in big ways since then, but that it's the poor and the working class who has um, been hit hardest by this retreat for marriage. Because for a variety of reasons, college educated and more affluent Americans have kind of figured out ways to, um, you know, keep their marriages together in more recent years. I wonder if this is in two partly a problem of elite cultural messaging. I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been Charles Murray. It might have been Arthur Brooks. I just don't remember it. And it doesn't really matter. Who said, you know, you should you should preach how you live because the cultural elites don't live by what they preach when it comes to intact marriage families, do they? Yeah, this is a huge problem. Our elites talk left and walk right when it comes to family. Right. You know, um, the vast majority of people, um, you know, living in upper middle class neighborhoods, you know, these days tend to vote um, Democratic and, and, and embrace a, a number of liberal ideas. But then when it comes down to sort of how they live their lives, you know, they have marriage before the baby carriage, they don't get divorced. And I've also actually found that <laughs> there's this new thing called female breadwinners, which has been celebrated, of course, in the media. Um, but guess where female breadwinners are? <laughs> and these are families where the majority of the income is coming in from the mom. Yeah. Um, guess where they're least likely to be found? Well, that's that's in the upper quartile of the American yeah, of course. hierarchy. Of course. So, so it's you know it, it is a, a, a you know a problem, and you know we see, for instance, that when you look at people like Steve Jobs, when he was you know when he was alive, he uh, 
keep producing the iPad, but when one of the young kids use it, and there are plenty of other examples. Oh, yeah, so that's people. right. You see this with Hollywood, too, and particularly music production. Let me take a quick pr- uh, commercial yeah. break, Brad. I want to talk about what we do about it when we come right back. Brad Wilcox sure. is our, thank you, Brad Wilcox is our guest. He's the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia and a professor of sociology. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Professor Brad Wilcox from uh, the University of Virginia, where he is also the director of the National Marriage Project there, is with us talking about his op-ed in yesterday's Arizona Republic. Let's talk about families' part in our country's stability. Professor, um, one can't have a serious or academic discussion about this issue of family and its importance, fatherhood and its relationship to our sociology and our culture without invoking the name Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And I've tracked his work for many, many years. And I noticed at the end of his life, he did an interview where he was asked, it might have been by Tim Russert, who worked for him. It might have been Tim Russert who said, and what are we supposed to do about it? How do we fix this? And he said something that haunted me. I'll never forget. He said, I've spent my entire life on this issue and still have no earthly idea. That can't be right. Can it, Dr. Wilcox? That can't be right. Um, No, it can't be. And I think one thing just to sort of bear in mind here is that, um, you know, as uh, as a little 60 years ago, you know, we kind of had it basically – you know, right. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we want to go back to 1950 or 55, but I think the point I'm making is that there are certainly any number of cultural and policy and economic, you know, steps that we could take that would strengthen and stabilize American families across the board. So um, I think the question is, do we have the will, you know, to go forward and, and, and forge stronger families? Um, and um, if we do, as we've done with things like, you know, um, Campaigns against drunk driving, um, campaigns against teen pregnancy, um, we we can tackle this successfully. That's what I was going to ask you. You know, we do have a record of success with campaigns that we just seem to either forget about or 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 what silo off as if they couldn't also be applied to these kinds of issues. I was thinking exactly right. Uh, drunk driving for certain forest fires. My God, forest fires and smoky uh, drug abuse. Um, you know, this is your brain on drugs and that sort of thing where we reduce drug use in this country about 50 percent over the course of about six years. We could do this. Um, how would that look when it comes to marriage? Would it be messaging in certain in certain venues? Uh, would it be a cultural um, a cultural change in some of our entertainment with a commitment to that. You know, entertainment got in the business of it, too, once upon a time with seatbelts and smoking and drugs. They got into it. Um, I don't know why they couldn't get into it here unless it's deemed such a political issue, which I wish it weren't. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think if we actually kind of, um, you know, if, if um you know, Reed Hastings, who heads up, you know, Netflix, if, um, you know, our leading um, university professors, if the New York Times, you know, if these kinds of institutions all got behind, um, and I'm not saying, I'm not looking for like a rose-colored story to be told here, I'm just looking for the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the problem is that our, our, our elite institutions don't tell the truth about the connections between, for instance, as I mentioned in the piece, uh, mass incarceration, right? 
and family breakdown. They don't tell the truth about the health of the American dream and uh, family stability either. So I, I think a lot of people don't even know that, you know, the best predictor from this Harvard professor of whether or not poor kids, you know, rise economically in America is the share of two-parent households in their uh, communities in terms of, you know, that's what Raj Chetty found. We looked at, you know, um, basically community predictors of um, the health of the American dream. So there's just a kind of tremendous ignorance out there in part because our, our elites don't have the courage or because they have false conviction about, you know, family. And so people aren't getting the message about how much marriage matters um, and how much uh, dads uh, matter, um, you know, for our kids in our country today. Professor, too, it's it's also true, isn't it, that a lot of reticence to address this came about because we didn't want to come off, society didn't want to come off in any sense of denigrating the work of single mothers, right? I mean, you write that in your op-ed, you, at least you mention it in your op-ed. It's just that what? We went too far in that direction? We went too far in that solicitude, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, no one wants to shame single mothers. And I was raised by a single mom, and my mom did a great job, you know. Um, and we all know that there are plenty of good single moms out there, and there are plenty of kids uh, who have done great. Um, you know, Barack Obama was raised by a single mom uh-huh. and was obviously very successful. Um, my old so, boss, Bill know, Bennett, was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the point is not to sort of say that, you know, being raised by a single mom, you know, is a deference. Clearly not. But you have to sort of step back and look at the big picture here. And as a sociologist, I can tell you that on average, kids are more likely to struggle um, when they experience, you know, family instability. And communities that are defined by single-parent families and by unstable families um, are much more likely to have problems in school, to have uh, a law an order issue, um, and um, to be suffering economically um, because, you know, they don't have uh, fathers um, in the homes and, you know, all of the economic uh, sort of prosperity and social stability that uh, married households bring to our, our neighborhoods. I was just thinking, as I mentioned that example, Professor, Dr. Bennett used to say, yeah, I mean, sure, I was. Look, you can be born and grow up and succeed in Beirut. It's just really a whole lot harder. Fair enough, right? Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's harder. And, um, you know, uh, again, there's also, what's interesting, too, is we're seeing more and more really sophisticated Stuff um, that's looking at the biological angle. And, you know, my old professor, um, Sarah McClanahan of Princeton, was involved with a study, for instance, that showed that, you know, for some kids, there's a biological kind of um, vulnerability yeah. to fatherlessness. Yeah. Um, whereas other kids, there's a biological resilience. I mean, they're able to look at, you know, some really detailed biological measures here. So the point to be is that some kids, you know, fail through life fine without a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but other kids really, um, end up um, in a very bad place because they haven't had, you know, the love and attention of uh, their father or they haven't had two married parents, you know, uh, in their corner. Well, thank you for bringing your love and attention to this issue as you have for so long and doing it so well, Brad Wilcox. It's been too long since we talked. Uh, my fault, as I said, and uh, hope to be in touch again rather soon. The issue needs it, and we thank you.
Okay. I appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for being in touch. Absolutely. Professor Wilcox, the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, where he is also a professor of sociology. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Much appreciated. Um, let me also put in a good word for our friends at Balance of Nature. I take their fruits and veggies every single day. It boosts my energy, my health, my immunity. It'll do the same for you, 100% natural. You just take it once a day. It's all fruits and veggies. That's all it is, 16 whole fruits, 15 whole veggies blended into using their cold uh, cold uh, press process blended into vegetarian capsules, which you can open and sprinkle into food or drink if you don't like swallowing them or just take them once a day the way I do. And you're good to go. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I'll close where we began, uh, and maybe C.S. Lewis still had it best. Stunningly appropriate title to the name of the book he wrote this in. The name of the book is called The Abolition of Man. Let's think about that phrase where he wrote, it is not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and genuine emotion that marks our current times. Our intellectuals' heads are no bigger than the ordinary. It is the atrophy of the chest beneath it that makes them seem so. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. The stuff is still true, folks. That's why it still has purchase. I just wish it were a bigger coin in our realm of discussion. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed.